Well, tonight we are beginning a brand new study in the books of First and Second Timothy. This will be our, our focus moving through the summer. We're going to be taking a journey chapter by chapter, verse by verse through this, these two wonderful books of the Bible. Our goal is to cover a chapter each week. And first and second Timothy are books of the Bible that really reveal to us God's heart for his church. They reveal to us what is to be our focus as the people of God. What, what are the things that are important that we focus on? What are some of the things that, that we need to avoid? And also will give us some great insight into how to walk with the Lord, but also how to wage warfare for Jesus while living in this world. The outline for our book of First Timothy will be as follows. Tonight we're going to be looking at chapter 1 and the message of the church. Next week we'll be looking at chapter 2 and the members of the church, who God is, the people God has placed in his church. And then in First Timothy's chapter 3 and 4, we'll be looking at the ministers of the church those whom God has called to lead and to serve. And then in chapters 5 and 6, we'll be looking at the ministry of the church. And some of the subjects that we're going to cover in the course of this study um, is we'll, we'll talk about prayer. We'll talk about godliness. We're going to talk about grace. We're going to see the qualifications that the Lord has for leadership. Um, we're going to talk about the body life, how the body of Christ is meant to function as, as one body moving together, functioning together. We'll, we'll consider um, also things like uh, how we're to wage war. Um, and that's just to name a few of the things that we're going to go through through the course of the summer. And I'm going to be team teaching. Um, so I'm doing tonight. Next week, we're going to hear from one of our elders, Rick Barsh, who is a very gifted uh, Bible teacher. He'll be sharing with us. We're also going to hear in this series from Pastor Tyler, uh, Pastor Jesse, Pastor Jamie. We're going to hear from one of our former missionaries, Pastor Jim Stewart, and one of our current missionaries, um, Kurt Kula, who is in Cambodia are all going to be taking a chapter as we move through this book. And I'm really looking forward to this. I think it's going to be a great time for us. And we're going to intermix in between this some concerts. We have a concert coming up in July with Dominic Bally. We're going to have him back, and we're going to do a concert again out in the courtyard. We're going to have a family worship night during the week of VBS. That's going to be a lot of fun. We're going to have Shane Lance back uh, with his band in August. And so um, those will be be some special nights. But as we look at our, our study this evening, verse 1 introduces us to the author. Notice verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the commandment of our God and Savior, and the Lord Jesus Christ, our hope. Now notice here that Paul refers to himself in his usual fashion, that he calls himself an apostle of Jesus Christ. Apostle is the Greek word apostolos, which means to be sent out or one who is sent out. And in ancient times, that word apostolos, it referred to one who was an ambassador. 
One who was sent out by his king into another country in order to represent his king in that country. And this is Paul's favorite title of himself. That that Paul recognized that his citizenship was in heaven, but that he was here on planet earth to be an ambassador, a representative of Jesus Christ. And so... The first duty of a ambassador is to be that link to form a relationship between his king and the, the country to which he's been sent. And the application that we have for us in this is, is all of us are ambassadors, the Bible says, of Jesus Christ. That, that's, that's our place in this world. So we are the first duty of every Christian is to be the connecting link between our fellow human beings, men and women that are around us and Jesus Christ, that we are to be a representative for King Jesus here on foreign soil. And I want you to think about that. I want you to kind of keep that in your mind as you go off to to work tomorrow or wherever God has you, that you're going out as this ambassador of Jesus Christ. And so we need to ask ourselves, how are we representing him in this world? So Paul was an apostle. He was God's ambassador. He's the author. And then in verse 2, we're introduced to the recipient of this letter. He says to Timothy, A true son in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God our Father and Jesus Christ our Lord. Now, Timothy is a young pastor who who held a special place in Paul's life and heart. Timothy was a native of the city of Lystra in the Roman province of Galatia. And if you're familiar with Paul's visit to Lystra, we're going to hit this in our Sunday morning study in the book of Acts. Um, This summer, we'll get to this. It's in Acts chapter 14. But if you remember when Paul went to Lystra, he didn't have a good experience there. Because the people of Lystra rose up against him and they literally dragged Paul outside of the city and they stoned him to death. They threw stones at him until he died. And so if you can picture this, they're throwing, hurling these rocks at Paul. I mean, just imagine dying in that type of way. Imagine just having people throwing, you know, not little pebbles, but big rocks at you, sharp, jagged rocks, and they're hitting you, and you fall to the ground, and they keep pelting you, and Paul Paul literally dies, and the believers are gathered around him, and they're mourning, and God brings them back to life. He's risen. He comes back to life. And you would think that Paul coming back to life would be like, let's get out of here. You know what he does? He says, let's go back into the city. Let's go give him some more Jesus. And he goes back in and he starts preaching to them. Now, you recall that Paul would write these words in Philippians chapter 3. He would say, I want to know Jesus and the power of his resurrection. And I think when we read that, when we hear that, we think, yeah, I want that too, Paul. I want to know Jesus and the power of his resurrection. But my friends, don't forget 
that in order to experience resurrection, you have to have a death. There's no resurrection without a death. There has to be a death, which is why Paul would also say, I want to know Jesus. This is my, my aim, my passion. I want to know more of Jesus. I want to know him in the, in the power of his resurrection, but also in the fellowship of his suffering. And Paul experienced both of those when he was in Lystra, death and resurrection. Now get this. The fruit that came out of that very difficult experience was this young man, Timothy. Timothy comes to faith. And God would eventually call Timothy to the ministry, and he would become Paul's apprentice. He would become Paul's traveling companion. And I want you to notice how Paul refers to him here. He calls him a true son in the faith. Some translations put it, my true son in the faith. And when Paul was writing to the divided church in Corinth, This is what he said about Timothy. He so loved Timothy. He said, I have sent to you, Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord. When Paul was planning to send Timothy to Philippi, he would write, I have no one like him. He would call him like-minded. As a son with a father, he has served with me in the gospel. Paul and Timothy had been through a lot together. And this created this special bond that they had of ministry. Timothy was a young man that Paul could trust. Timothy was a young man that that Paul knew that he could send him anywhere and he would go. And he knew that as he went, that Timothy would not just be a great representation of Paul, but more importantly, of Jesus. And so when the church in Ephesus was having some problems and needed direction, who did Paul choose to to go there? Timothy. But the church of Ephesus was a very special church to the Apostle Paul. Because, maybe you know this, but the church of Ephesus was founded by Paul, and Paul would end up staying there three years. It was the longest place that he ever pastored. I think the second longest place he ever was at was in Thessalonica, where he was there a year and a half. But he spent three whole years in Ephesus building this church, pouring into this church. This this church was a, a special church to him, and he ends up leaving it in the hands of Timothy. That's how much he trusted him. That's how much he loved him. That's how much he he believed that Timothy would be faithful in bringing the gospel there. And the church of Ephesus would be this incredible church that that would impact the world, that would send people all over into Asia Minor with the gospel. It was a, a very special place to Paul. You know, I remember I, I, I planted a church in Oregon. Some of you know that. I was there five years. And when God called us back here to Calvary Vista, that was the hardest thing that we've ever had to do. Because we literally felt like, you, you parents, I mean, just imagine, we, we felt like we were leaving a five-year-old in the hands of somebody else. And so we prayed long and hard about who 
was going to take the church. And our leaders, they, they picked a, a great guy that came in, and he led the church well, and that church is, um, exists to this day and is doing great. In fact, I'm going to preach there next month. Uh, I'm really excited about that at their, uh, one of their Sunday services in July. And um, just amazing. But this is it's a heavy thing. This is a heavy thing for Paul. And he picks Timothy. But Ephesus was also a very immoral place. It was a wicked place. So that meant it wasn't the easiest place to pastor. It was a place where there would be some heavy warfare. And so Paul is writing to Timothy to encourage him to stay the course, to remain, to be faithful, to stay stay focused on the right things and to not drift from his calling. In fact, skip ahead to to verse 18 of chapter 1. And I want want you to notice how Paul kind of wraps up this chapter. He says this to young Timothy, This charge I commit to you, son Timothy, according to the prophecies previously made concerning you, that by them you may wage good warfare. He's saying, Timothy, I want you to fight well in this battle of faith and ministry. I want you, I'm charging you. It's like a a sergeant to his troops. I'm charging you to wage good warfare. And then look at verse 9. Having faith and a good conscience, which some having rejected concerning the faith, have suffered shipwreck of whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I delivered to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. Paul is writing for this purpose. He's saying, he's saying, Timothy, I'm writing this letter to you because I don't want you to suffer shipwreck like some of these other guys have. And you know, one of the biggest reasons why people suffer spiritual shipwreck is they drift off course. They get their eyes off of Jesus and off of what's important, and they drift into dangerous waters. So a big part of Paul's writing to Timothy is to show him and to show us what it looks like to stay on course, what it looks like to wage good warfare. And so here in chapter, this first chapter, Paul has three things that he wants Timothy and us to focus on. He wants us to focus on God's message, verses 3 through 11. He wants us to focus on God's purpose in verse 5. And he wants us to focus on God's grace in verses 12 through 17. So that'll be our outline for tonight. Let's, let's look at number one, that, that, that we would, that Timothy would stay focused on God's message. He says, as I urged you, When I went into Macedonia, remain in Ephesus that you may charge some that they teach no other doctrine, nor give heed to fables and endless genealogies, which cause disputes rather than godly edification, which is in faith. Now the purpose of the commandment is love from a pure heart and from a good conscience and from a sincere faith from which some have strayed, have turned aside to idle talk, desiring to be teachers of the law, understanding neither what they say nor the things which they affirm. But we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. 
Knowing this, that the law is not made for a righteous person, but for the lawless and insubordinate, for the ungodly, for sinners, for for the unholy and the profane, for murderers of fathers and murderers of mothers, for manslayers, for fornicators, for sodomites, for kidnappers, for liars, for perjurers. And if there is any other thing that is contrary to what? To sound doctrine. According to the glorious gospel of the blessed God, which was committed to my trust. He says, first of all, you're Timothy. I want you to stay focused on teaching sound doctrine. In other words, like we like to say around here, keep the main thing, the main thing. And the main thing is what church? Simply Jesus. Keep the main thing, the main thing. He says, don't get sidetracked on fables. Fables are myths and stories. Don't get sidetracked on on genealogies. Don't get sidetracked. In verse 6, he mentions idle talk, which is another way to say that is fruitless discussions. It's discussions that just go nowhere. They don't build anybody up. You know, sound doctrine is like the GPS system in your car or on your phone. How many of you enjoy your GPS? I love mine. And I love the GPS. I do think it's weird that it seems like all the the GPSs are in a woman's voice. I don't know if it's because that voice is supposed to be more soothing, but I did hear of, of one husband, one guy who was married, who when he got his GPS immediately changed it to a male voice because he said, I don't need two women in my life telling me where to go and what to do. <laughs> but you guys remember, those of you who are old enough, the Thomas Brother maps, how many remember those? You younger people, we used to have this map book in the glove box or under the seat. And you're going somewhere, you have to pull it out and you pull over. And where am I supposed to go? Unless you have somebody navigating. But, but you know, they're, they're having to look up on the map. I think you're supposed to turn here. Or you'd have the friend who would give you weird directions. So you can go down to the third street and at the green pole make a right. And then you're going to go down and you'll see the house with the blue trim. You're going to make a left there. But he didn't know that last week they painted the trim white. So you drive by it. You're right. Remember, you're driving all around in circles, getting lost. I love my GPS. I love that my truck has a fuel range on it that tells me, you know, when I'm going to run out of gas. And when I want to trip, I know that, okay, I got to, you know, I got to calculate, you know, how far I can get to that next gas station that's coming up. And my GPS will tell me when that gas station is coming up. It's wonderful. Love the GPS. Sound doctrine. It's like, it's like a GPS. It's like a navigational system. Now, one of the things I do hate, I will say this about traffic and or about driving, especially on the freeways, driving in traffic. I don't like traffic. Does anybody here like traffic? Please don't raise your hand. Okay, okay good. You, none of you like traffic either, all right? And I used to always, when I would get in traffic, I would always look for the way out. I'd always look for the shortcut. I'd see that frontage road off the freeway, and I would think, 
there's my ticket. And I'd be like, I'm going to get off there. And my wife would be like, don't get off here. Please don't do this. Oh, babe, it's going to be great. It's going to be wonderful. And I would get off on the frontage road only to find out why nobody else was on the frontage road. Because it would take me way off in the wrong direction. Or it would lead to, you know, uh, a dead end somewhere. And I would realize, oh, that's why nobody else did this. I've learned when driving that there rarely aren't any shortcuts. You got to stay the course. That's the best way to get to the destination. You just stay the course. You just follow the, the GPS. Well, the same thing is true in the Christian life. There are no shortcuts. The key is to stay the course. The key is to keep the main thing the main thing. But stories and myths and fables, these things are like the shortcuts, like the detours. Myths and stories and fables, they can be greatly entertaining. They can be interesting. They can kind of tickle our ear. You know, we hear a story of somebody who, quote, unquote, died and went to heaven, and they come back to tell us, you know, what they saw. But what they saw and, and what they heard does not match what is in the Bible. And you're like, okay, that, that, I don't think that's true. But, oh, it's their story. It's their thing. And, and we need to stay away from that. Stay focused on sound doctrine. Don't get blown off course or sidetracked by genealogies. There's a lot of interest today in genealogies, aren't there? Ancestry.com. You know, people that get so focused on trying to figure out where they came from. But I want you to hear me on this. Some people get so focused on where they came from and they forget that what's most important is where they're going. They get so focused on where they came from, they get so focused on living in the past or for the past instead of living for the present and with an eye on the future. The Jewish people were notorious for this. They placed so much importance on connecting themselves to Father Abraham. We're the descendants of Abraham. We're his children. That's what makes us right in the eyes of God when they failed to realize that the whole point and purpose of Abraham was to get them to Jesus. That all of the promises made to Abraham have their ultimate fulfillment in Jesus. And Paul says that, that things like myths and fables and genealogies, and he adds in verse 6, idle talk, those are like the detours. The supposed shortcuts that get us off course. And he says they only cause disputes. They just cause disputes rather than bringing godly edification, which is in faith. They cause disputes because they're subjective and they're not founded in truth or fact. They're just issues that people can argue over. But you know one thing you can't argue over? You can't over argue over gravity, right? It's a fact. You go on the roof tonight of the building and jump off, we're calling an ambulance. Gravity's going to take its course. You're not going to fly. You're not going to jump and go up. Sorry, it's not going to happen. It's a fact. 
And our faith is built on that which is proven, that which is a fact. It's built on the reality and the fact that there is an empty tomb because Jesus rose again from the dead. Can I get an amen to that? So, so Paul says to Timothy, stay focused on sound doctrine. Now, the other thing that Paul wanted Timothy to steer clear of was legalism. And one of the biggest detours and things to get people off track in the church in the first century was legalism. You see, in Paul's day, there were those who would come, especially into the Gentile churches, and teach that in order for you Gentiles, you non-Jewish people, to really be saved, it's great that you believe in Jesus, but if you really want to be saved, you also need to become a Jew. You need to be, they, they called themselves the Judaizers, and they wanted to make everyone convert to Judaism by being circumcised and following some of the rituals of Judaism. And you know, legalism, that was the legalism of that day. But we have legalism today. Legalism in any form takes the focus off of, listen, the finished work of Jesus Christ and puts the emphasis on the performance of men. It takes the emphasis off of Jesus and his performance, and it puts the emphasis on your performance. And Paul reminds Timothy here that the purpose, what what was the whole purpose of the law? Look again in verse 8. He says, but we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. You know, after church tonight, you can go out and turn here on Vista Way. And you can go down the street and you're going to see, you're not going to get very far before you see a speed limit sign. Anybody know what the speed limit is out here? 35? I think it's 35. You're going to see a sign. Why is that sign there? Why is that sign there that's, that's pointing us to what the speed limit is? To make sure that we're driving safe and not reckless. They are there to inform the person who is speeding, hey, you need to slow down. You're going to get a ticket. Now, Paul says, again, in verse 9, knowing this, The law is not made for a righteous person. The person driving the speed limit, the sign's not for him. He's driving the speed limit. It's for the person who isn't. It's for the person who's like, oh, oh, I need to to slow down. The law, Paul's saying, doesn't exist for the righteous person. But here's the problem. The Bible says none of us are righteous. No, not one. Here's a great way to think of righteousness versus unrighteousness. Righteousness is perfection. Unrighteousness is anything that is not perfect. It's imperfection. And all of us fall under the category of imperfection. We're not righteous. We, we don't follow God's way. And Paul would say in, to the Galatian church, he would say, the law, God gave the law to be a schoolmaster to teach us what's wrong, to point us to grace so that the law would tell us, hey, don't covet. So that we would know that coveting, wanting something else that someone else has isn't good for us. The, the law would say, don't lie. Don't bear false witness. 
It was there to, to, to teach us like a teacher. This is what's right. This is what's wrong. But the law, it instructs, but it also condemns. It condemns us when we don't follow it. It condemns us when it reveals that, ah, oh, I'm not righteous. I'm, I'm unrighteous. I got a ticket way back in the 1980s. I think it was 1984, 1985. I was hired by this church to be their youth pastor. First Sunday, I drove down here from Orange County. I was still living in Orange County. And after church, we had lunch at a house right here off of Bobier. And, and so I'm heading down Oceanside Boulevard toward the I-5 to go back home. And right from like Melrose, you know, all the way for quite a while, the, the, the speed limit there on Oceanside Boulevard, it's, it's Boulevard is 50 miles an hour. So I'm cruising along. Well, right up past El Camino Real, before you hit the five, it changes to 35. Very first day that I come to serve here at the church to teach these wonderful kids about Jesus, I get a ticket. And I told the police officer, I, I didn't see the sign. It was 50 miles an hour right there. He says, sorry, just go back a mile. It's right there. You can give me grace. I broke the law because the law is for the unrighteous. It's not for those who are righteous, but for those who are unrighteous. It reveals to us what we're doing wrong. It reveals to us how we miss the mark. So again, verse nine, knowing this, that the law is not made for a righteous person, but for the lawless and insubordinate, for the ungodly, for the sinners, for the unholy, for the profane, for the murderers and fathers of murderers and uh, and murderers of mothers, for manslayers and for fornicators. He goes to this long list of all those who are not walking with God living in rebellion against God and saying, that's who the law is for. So, number one, Paul's saying to Timothy, stay focused on God's message. Teach sound doctrine. Don't get focused on all these other things. The second thing he wants them to stay focused on, though, is God's purpose. Look at verse 5 again. He says, now the purpose of the commandment, or you might say the instruction." Or the purpose of sound doctrine, you could put it that way, is this, love from a pure heart, from a good conscience, and from a sincere faith. The purpose of sound doctrine is to produce in us love, first for God, and secondly, for others. A love that he says that is of a pure heart and a sincere faith, that means the motives are right. That that I'm not seeking to love God and show love to God so that I can get something from God. Now, a pure heart and sincere faith is I'm, I'm loving God in response to my understanding of how much he loves me. That's why I love God. Because he loves me so much. It's responding in worship 
And it's living our lives in response to his love for us. In the same way, my love for others isn't to win their approval or to get something from people, but it's, it's, it flows out of me because I understand how much God has loved me. I need to love those around me. In fact, Paul would say in the book of Romans, I love this, that the love of God has been poured into our hearts by the Holy Spirit. You know that? The Holy Spirit comes to live inside of you. And him living inside of you, he, he's the, the love of God, the fruit of the Spirit. He, he's, he's, it's, it's, it's in there. It's part of who he is. And the more we get connected to Jesus, guess what? The love of God that's been poured into us, it's meant to be poured out of us on others to encourage others. So it's love from a pure heart and sincere faith, and it's love that is also to be from a good conscience. That's right behavior. Conscience is when our lips and our life match. One's life is validated by one's behavior. So the teaching that doesn't move people to love God with right motives and doesn't move them to to love God with a right behavior is missing the mark. It's not accomplishing the goal. But if our teaching is resulting in people falling more in love with Jesus... And as a result of that, they want to serve Jesus with their lives and use their gifts. Then we're fulfilling our purpose. That's what we call discipleship. That's the purpose of sound doctrine. So he says to Timothy, I want you to stay focused on God's message. I want you to stay focused. And remember, what's what's the purpose? It's to produce people who are in love with God and in love with others. And that's flowing out of them. And then the third thing is that he wants him to stay focused on God's grace. Grace is getting from God what we do not deserve. We deserve death. And God gave us life. We deserve to be destroyed, but instead, we've been reconciled to God. We deserve, because of our sin and our rebellion, we deserved hell, but we've been given heaven. We deserve to be God's perpetual enemies, but instead, God has made us his family. That's grace. And the beauty of the Christian message is that it is a message that magnifies the grace of God. It magnifies this is what God has done for us. And Paul's going to give a personal testimony as a reminder here to Timothy. Let's look at verse 12. He says, and I thank Christ Jesus our Lord, whom has enabled me, Because he counted me faithful, putting me into the ministry, although I was formerly a blasphemer, a persecutor, an insolent man. That means an arrogant man. But I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord was exceedingly abundant with faith and love, which are in Christ Jesus. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the chief. That last phrase is so interesting in light of Paul's background. You know, anything about Paul's background, man, he, he was a religious 
guy. In fact, let's consider his testimony that he gives of himself in Philippians chapter 3. He says this. If anyone else thinks that he may have confidence in the flesh, the idea is confidence before God in his flesh, I more so. Here's why. I was circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews. Concerning the law, I was a Pharisee. Concerning zeal, I persecuted the church. Concerning righteousness, which is in the law, I was blameless. Paul's saying, look. And his whole point is that we can't have confidence in our flesh. But he says, if anybody could, it would have been me. I mean, I had the pedigree. People looked at me and they said, man, that guy, he is blameless. He is without accusation. You know, he, he's a stand-up. That's how they looked at Paul. But the problem with legalism is that it puts an emphasis on the outward performance. That's the problem with legalism. But Paul says, you know, on the outside, I looked blameless. But you know what? On the inside, I was full of pride. I was an insolent, I was an arrogant man. I was prideful. That's what, pre, what, what legalism does. When you get caught in that, that performance-based acceptance mentality, that, that when, you're, when you're living your, your life this way, and as Christians, we can slip in. This is, this is one of those areas that we can drift into and get shipwrecked, is when we start focusing on, if I perform this way, God's going to accept. If I perform this way, he's going to answer my prayers. If I perform this way, God's going to be happy with me. And here's what it does. When you're performing well, you get prideful. And you get judgmental. And you look at others and you're like, what's wrong with them? How come they can't pray for three hours like I do? You know? How come they, you know, don't do the one-year Bible like I do? You know, all of that type of mentality. We look on others and we can judge them. We get prideful when we're performing well and when we're not. And there always comes a season where we're not. Comes that season where we, instead of praying three hours, we fall asleep after 20 minutes. We wake up three hours later going, oh no, you know. Then we fall under condemnation because we're not living up to this standard that we've made for ourselves. Paul says, while others might have looked at me as having it all together, I was prideful and that pride led me to blaspheme God. I didn't know it at the time that I was doing it, but my rejection of Jesus, I was blaspheming God and that whole mentality led me to persecute the church. He was public enemy number one for the church. But Paul says, but God was gracious to me. Instead of annihilating me, he saves me. He reveals Jesus to me. And I love what Paul says. Here he says, and it's a faithful scene. Jesus came to save sinners and I'm the chief. I'm the chief of them, the sinners. And what's crazy about this I want you to hear me on this. This isn't, Timothy isn't one of Paul's first books that he wrote. He wrote this one after he walked with Jesus for quite a while. But he's still calling himself the chief of sinners. Did, did that mean that Paul just got worse and worse and worse as he was living under grace? No. 
But catch this. I want you to catch this. The more that Paul discovered of the the grace of God and the love of God, the more that 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 was being magnified and the brightness of of the light was shining on on that like, like, like a light would shine on a diamond, the more that Paul realized realized that in in comparison to that, he, he was like a lump of coal. Which is really a beautiful thing. When we come to that place, though, the closer we get to understanding the love of God and the grace of God, the more that we understand how gracious God has been to us. The more that we're honest with ourselves and, and being like, Lord, I, I don't have it all together. Thank you so much for, for loving me and caring for me. Paul says, I, man, I was the chief of sinners. And then it just blew Paul's mind that God would show him such grace. And verse 16 is powerful. He says, however, for this reason, I obtain mercy that in me, first, Christ might show all longsuffering as a pattern to those who are going to believe on him for everlasting life. Paul's saying, look, but I understand this, and we all need to understand this. My life is a testimony and a pattern to the mercy and the grace of God, and so is yours. Your life is a pattern. It's a testimony. It's a platform. I encourage you, share your testimonies. And if you think because maybe you became to Christ when you got young that you don't have a testimony. Let me remind you of something that is very, very true. Some of you in this room, Jesus pulled you out of the pit, and you were in it deep. It was the miry clay. It was all over you. You were filthy and dirty and and all caught up in all sorts of, of horrible things. That's your testimony, and I encourage you to share that. Don't magnify your testimony. Magnify Jesus, though, and what you know, some people, they tell their testimony like, 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 that was the good old days. You know, don't do that, okay? <laughs> some of you have been pulled out of the pit, and the rest of us have been saved from it. You've been saved from it. We all have a testimony. Because I want you to think about this. I know. I I got saved at 11 years old. But I know if it wasn't for God touching my dad and then through my dad touching me, I know where I would have ended up. I know the path I would have went down. I know the pit that I would have ended up in. He saved me from it and I'm thankful for that. But I know where I would have ended up because so many of my friends ended up there. So we all have a testimony. Don't don't be afraid to, to share that. Paul's life was this reminder that no one is beyond the scope of God's reach. No one is beyond the scope of God's usefulness. If God, Paul would say, if God can use me, he can use anyone. Praise the Lord. And at this point, it says, if Paul cannot contain what's the feeling that's welling up in his heart. Look at verse 17. He says, now, he just breaks forth into song. Now to the king eternal, immortal, invisible, to God who alone is wise, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Charles Spurgeon said this about that verse. Paul could not help this outburst of praise. He must put it in a doxology. 
That when he remembered his own conversion and pardon and his being entrusted with the ministry of the gospel, he was obliged to put down his pen and lift up his voice in grateful thanksgiving to God. And so may it be with us as we remember what great things the Lord has done for us. I hope that you have moments in your Christian experience where where you're reading your Bible, you're journaling, you're praying, and you just have to put it down and just say, God, I got to praise you right now. My wife and I, we we have e-bikes. It's one of the things that we invested in we live on a hilly area and riding a bike in in uh, our neighborhood was like impossible until we got these e-bikes and we we love to, to ride and my wife we have these helmets that that you can listen to you know music and stuff and my wife she'll put on praise and so we're cruising we'll be on like a 20 mile bike ride and, and she'll get up ahead of me and suddenly she's like she's like doing like this you know <laughs> She's just you know, riding, you know, because she's just caught up in the moment of worshiping the Lord. It's so cute, man. I just love it, you know, that. You have those moments where it's just like, oh, Lord, you're so good. You're so good. Greek scholar Jerry Vine said, this doxology ascribes to God his sovereignty that he is king, his unoriginated, unending existence that he is eternal, his essential purity, that he is incorruptible, his imperceptibility to sight, that he is invisible, and the absoluteness of his deity, that he is the only God. Well, this brings us full circle back to verse 18. Again, Paul says, This charge I commit to you, son Timothy, according to the prophecies previously made concerning you. Now, pause there for a minute. Event, evidently, when Timothy was called into ministry by the Lord, there were prophecies, words that were spoken over him and God's call upon his life. Now, we don't know what those prophecies were, but Timothy knew and Paul knew, and Paul is bidding Timothy to recall them to remember them. And you know, that's a great thing to do in hard times, to remember God's promises to you. It's very, very important. In fact, look back for a minute at verse 3, if you would. Look back at verse 3. Paul says, as I urged you when I went into Macedonia, remain in Ephesus. Now, there are some Bible scholars who believe the reason why Paul used that language, Timothy, I want you to remain in Ephesus, is because Timothy was contemplating quitting. Because Ephesus was such a hard place that he was contemplating quitting the ministry or contemplating leaving his post. Man, I'm done with this place. And I don't know if that's true, but if it is true, it wouldn't surprise me because there is not a senior pastor I know, including myself, who has not thought about quitting a time or two. In fact, it's been said that a lot of pastors want to quit on Sunday afternoon after their sermon on Sunday. It's like, oh, that went so bad. I'm done. I I quit, you know. You know, some of you tell me sometimes, and I love this. Some of you will come to me and say, Pastor Rob, I pray for you and the pastors here every single day. And I appreciate that. Because we desperately need it. 
It's the best thing that you can do for us. The level of spiritual warfare that we encounter is intense. And the more the church grows, the more influence that it expands in its influence, the greater the warfare. So I really, really appreciate your prayers for our pastors and their families. And I especially appreciate your, your prayers for me. I really, really do. It blesses me. Because I think it, it, it only makes sense that the, the biggest target with God putting me in a place of being the lead pastor, the biggest target is, is on my back. And I never really understood that until I became the lead pastor. In fact, when I was on staff here and I served with Pastor Brian Broderson when he was on staff here, when he was the lead pastor, I'm, I'm like 25 years old, youth pastor. I'd come bounding into his office, you know, all excited about the Lord, all excited about, man, I can't believe I get paid to do this. I get to teach kids the Bible. I get to go to the beach and hang out with kids. You know, this is awesome, amazing. God's so good, Brian. And Brian would be sitting there looking like he just went 10 rounds with Mike Tyson. And just like, like, you know, no response and I remember one time, you know, like, Brian, man, what's wrong with you? You know, have you not been having your devotions lately? I mean, I'm like, being all judgmental, you know, kind of thing. like, how come you're not all excited about the Lord? You know, and, and I remember he said this, and he says, Rob, he says, you just wait till you become a senior pastor. You'll understand. I had no idea. I, 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 I literally, I miss out. <laughs> immature I was at 25. I, I was like, you know, just, I was like, he doesn't know what he's talking about. Oh my goodness, did I find out. It's like, take, take normal warfare and times it like times 10 or 20. It's intense. The warfare that we go through. So I do, I appreciate. I really do appreciate your prayers. And that's why I understand what Paul is doing here, asking Timothy to reflect on the prophecies concerning his life. It's very, a very, very important thing to do in order to keep going in ministry. In fact, I tell every church planter, every person I know who thinks they might be called to full-time ministry, I'll tell them this, you have to know for certain. You have to get confirmation, clear confirmation from the Lord. Because in those moments, when the warfare is intense, in those moments where where you feel like you're just running uphill with the wind in your face, in those moments when, when you just feel like you're swimming, you know, against the current instead of with the current. In those moments when you just feel like you're, you're, you're hitting one closed door after another, when the pressures are insurmountable, in those times when everything seems like it's going wrong instead of going right, in those times when you're, you're running up against hard hearts, You have to be able to fall back on those confirmations. You have to be able to fall back on that prophecy and be able to say, I know I'm here. I know I'm I'm where I'm supposed to be. I know God has called me this. I think that's what Paul's doing here to Timothy. Remember the prophecies? Timothy, you're, you're exactly where you're supposed to be. 
He's calling him to fall back on that so that Timothy realized, you know what? I, I don't need to focus on results. I just need to be faithful. And that's what God calls us all to. So he says in verse 18, this charge I commit to you, Son Timothy, according to the prophecies previously made concerning you, that by them you may wage good warfare, fight that good fight, having faith and a good conscience, which some, having rejected concerning the faith, have suffered shipwreck, of whom are Hymenus, Hymenius and Alexander, whom I delivered to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. That's a heavy statement, but note this. The purpose of that is always for restoration. It's not for punishment. It's that they might come to their senses. That they might be like the prodigal coming out of the, the coming to his senses in the pig pen. But Paul mentions two guys here by name that went shipwrecked. Hymenius and Alexander, and here's the sad reality. I could add another 40 or 50 names of guys that I know personally to that description. Guys that I know who suffered shipwreck. Guys who were pastors or in ministry who became shipwrecked. Guys who lost their ministries, who lost their families. Some, unfortunately, who have completely abandoned their faith. Next Monday, we have our annual pastor's conference at Calvary Chapel Costa Mesa. Encourage you to be praying about that. And you know, the biggest surprise always at that pastor's conference is who's not there. It's the sad surprise. Because without fail, every single year, there's somebody who's not there because they suffered shipwreck that we hear about. So, but what Paul's saying here is not just a word for those of us who are pastors. This is a word for all of us. You want to avoid spiritual shipwreck? You want to be somebody who wages good warfare? Stay focused on God's message, sound doctrine. Make sure you are grounded in your faith, that you know what you believe and why. Stay focused on God's purpose, that you are loving God with a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith that that it's through right motives that's producing a right behavior. And stay focused on God's grace remembering what the Lord said to Paul, my grace is sufficient for you, that my power is made perfect in your weakness. Amen? I'm going to ask right now all of our pastors to come up here on the stage. If our pastors in the room would come up right now. And I've asked a dear friend, Ask Vern, who's a part of our fellowship, to come up here. And I'm going to have ask Vern to pray over us. And um, as Vern prays for us and prays over us, I want you guys just to stretch out your hands and just join him as he prays for us. I love when this guy prays. He's a prayer warrior. I take this very, very seriously. In a couple of months, I'm going to be 87. 
And my daily prayer is, Lord, help me to end well. Help me to end well. There will be no fear of any of you making shipwreck of your faith if you'll be ever mindful to these three things. Number one, who the flock is. Listen to this, guys. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he brought into existence by his own blood. In other words, we're not simply a community of like-minded believers. We're literally, we're literally purchased by the blood of Christ. We came into existence. We came into existence, brothers, by the blood of Christ. The second thing, as under shepherds of the sheep shepherd, the chief shepherd, we need to pattern ourselves after him. Listen to Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. What does it mean to shepherd the flock? Well, we have our chief shepherd as our example. If we pattern ourselves after him, then we'll feel fulfilled in our hearts and souls. And so the question is, are you making your sheep secure in the love of God? Are you leading them in righteousness? And the third is to comprehend that your hard work and dedication to your task, your sleep-interrupted night or exasperating day has not been overlooked, nor has it been in vain. Here's what Peter said to you guys. So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your care, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, guys, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. If you'll keep your mind on those three things, you'll never go shipwreck. Let's pray. Lord, all of us here who are your shepherds, all of us were just men, just men. And then, by your grace, you called us, and we became men of God. 
And then, Lord, by your grace, you touched us and anointed us to become shepherds of your flock. And so, Lord, I'm praying for these, my brothers, and those who are not present right now, who are shepherds of this flock of God. Lord, anoint them afresh and anew to see who you are as their shepherd, to see who they are as the shepherds of this flock, and to know, Lord God, to know in their hearts and their minds that this is holy of you by your mercy and by your grace. So, Lord, protect them, I pray. Lord, watch over their families. Lord, I pray for Pastor Rob, Lord. Lord, as the lead pastor, I know. (laughs) I ask you, Lord, to not only give him a full measure of grace for that which lies ahead, but, Lord, that he might be an example to these other shepherds under him. And, Lord, may these guys, these under-shepherds, Lord, I pray, Lord, that they will truly, truly know who they are in Christ Jesus, their Lord and Savior. Protect them and their families, I pray. And, Lord, may your name be glorified because of what is happening right now in Jesus' name. Amen.